Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be back. And Haley Knopf. What up, Amber and Alex? Oh, great intro there, Haley. I like the energy today. Yeah, that was like almost morning zoo, like cool <laughs> jazz DJ. That was, you're, you're, you're really coming into your own here. We are going to need that energy because we're doing an all-host show today. We're kind of shaking off the uh, holiday vibes and getting back into the news. We just had some good ones we wanted to talk about, just the three of us. Yes, a ton of interesting stories to get to. But before we even dive into the news, just before we hit record on this session, impeccable timing on our part, as always, uh, with uh, you know high-profile cases, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, basically picked up the state's challenge to the Biden administration's student loan debt relief policy, which has ping-ponged across, you know, a couple of different lower court levels here, but uh, was most recently uh, a the Eighth Circuit put an injunction on the Biden administration going forward with that debt relief as this bevy of states are looking to challenge it. And now that is going up to the high court, and they have actually put it on a little bit of a fast track those arguments are going to be held in February. So this is uh, obviously there's a lot of eyeballs on it. We've talked about this before. Just when you think the Supreme Court term is packed enough. Yeah, you know, there's sure. plenty of high profile things. Add this to the list. Another one that is going to have a lot of impact depending on how the justices rule there. Absolutely. And Alex, I don't like that you make it sound like it's our timing that's off. I... <laughs> I see my uh, my conspiracy theory is the Supreme Court and all major all the circuit courts sure. actually <laughs> it's um, all of them the grand conspiracy they have our production schedule that's true in their calendars and then they intentionally wait until we're right about to record to drop <laughs> major decisions they don't want pro se to be great they don't want to see it and it's uh, it's a it's a damn shame. It really is. Look, I love the notion that we would have yeah. any power whatsoever. <laughs> that that so any conspiracy theory we want to start about this is great in my book. But sure. let's get to the actual news that we were able to dive into and go deep on this week. Haley, I think you have an interesting one to start us off with. I do. So first up, we saw a really big development in multi-district litigation over the Google Play Store and allegations that Google has monopolized the market for distributing apps. So this, is, this has been a pretty high-profile case, and this is a very sizable class of more than 21 million consumers that won certification this week. The California federal judge overseeing this case certified essentially um, a class of anyone who paid for an app through the Google Play Store or paid for in-app purchases uh, and that can be like digital content, subscriptions, or ad-free versions of apps. Anyone who made those purchases through the Google Play billing system would be included in this class. Yeah, I mean, the sheer size of the class is certainly something that's going to be on our radar as the case moves forward here. And we'll talk about kind of the implications of going forward with such a huge class like this. But let's talk a little bit about the the underlying litigation itself. What are the general arguments here in terms of like the monopoly claims, things like that? Yeah, so this, you may remember that this is the Epic Games dispute. So this all kicked off when Epic, who is behind, you know, a ton of popular games, most notably Fortnite. Uh, in 2020, Epic was the first one to say, all right, wait a minute, 
Google and Apple are out here violating antitrust laws by charging developers these like hefty commissions on in-app purchases and cornering the market here on how pretty much everyone gets their apps. So Epic made these accusations and then that spurred a whole bunch of follow-on litigation. Um, There was a suit filed by an Illinois consumer and then app developers also filed one and then a coalition of state attorneys general also got involved. And then this all got consolidated into the really sprawling multi-district litigation that we see today. And what we're talking about specifically today is the consumer corner of this litigation. Generally speaking, what the consumers are alleging is that Google maintained a monopoly over the app distribution market, and that forces consumers to pay higher prices. One thing that they noted that I thought was a little staggering, and another few big numbers to throw into the mix here, the uh, Google Play Store generated $38 billion in revenues in 2020, and that actually accounted for more than 20% of the $182 billion in revenues that Google raked in that year. That is shocking to me because I thought Apple had so much of the market cornered that Google Play having those kind of numbers is staggering. I do want to dig more into this giant class, though. It kind of gives me shades of, remember a few years ago when Ticketmaster had a big class action settlement? I felt like everyone I knew was getting uh, vouchers from Ticketmaster. Is this class going to be like that, where it's like everyone you know is somehow in this class? Not quite, but I mean, maybe. It just depends on where you live. So specifically, this is a class of consumers who made these purchases between August of 2006 and now. But it's not a nationwide class. It is limited to a handful of states and territories. Those states are Alabama, Georgia, Hawaii, Illinois, Kansas, Maine, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. I wanted to list them all out for everyone listening because I know you want to know if you're a putative member of this, yeah. or actually, excuse me, like a member of this class. Yeah, that, I mean, that's service journalism. Thank you for that. <laughs> yes, that is uh, what we strive to provide <laughs> here on Pro Se. Um, and then, the, you know, this also includes some territories. They're the usual suspects like Guam, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, et cetera, et cetera. So ultimately, these are the consumers who are not represented by attorneys general in this litigation. And I should also note that District Judge James Donato, who's overseeing the litigation, also refused to certify a class seeking injunctive relief. And he basically just said that that, you know, these consumers are already seeking monetary damages and thus injunctive relief just isn't really appropriate in this certification request. Even if an injunction's not on the table at this point, I can't imagine Google is thrilled to have such a giant class certified. Um, What have they been saying so far? Yeah, they're they're certainly not. And they really, a big thing that they took aim at here in trying to fight the certification bid was the consumer's uh, economic harm expert and the formula for estimating how much more consumers were charged for these purchases thanks to Google's alleged uh, antitrust violations. So among other things, Google said that the model 
incorporates too many individualized issues and also doesn't account for different prices that consumers pay for different apps. But uh, the judge was really not swayed by these arguments. In this week's order, uh, he said very colorfully that Google had fired a, quote, blunderbuss of objections, but none of them hit the mark. And ultimately, Google's arguments are just much better suited for the trial. And Google has not shown at this stage that the methodology is unreliable or invalid or anything that warrants digging into that right now. Judges love to write the word blunderbuss, by the way. Not to, <laughs> that's, a, that's a separate thing rather than the, the merits of this very important litigation, but they love it. I'm going to add that to my list of words that you find most frequently <laughs> in legal documents that I secretly love. Like blunderbuss is good. I love anytime anybody in any filing says dispositive. That's one of oh, my favorite ooh, words. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So obviously, there's a, it's a huge money at stake here, huge implications for the for, you know, consumer tech market. What are we going to be looking at here in the near future? I suspect we're in for a very long bit of litigation. But like in the near term, what are we really looking at? Yeah. In the near, near future, just next month, actually, the parties are gearing up for an evidentiary hearing on uh, state attorneys general's request to get Google sanctioned for automatically deleting internal employee chats. Oh, man. So could see some sanctions. Who knows? And then a bit further out, a trial has been scheduled for May. So 2023, ladies and gentlemen, this is this is the year to watch this, this <laughs> Google Play Store litigation. Let's light this candle. <laughs> for our second story today, I'm going to pivot us back to the Supreme Court. I know we talk about a lot of Supreme Court cases, but when was the last time we discussed the high court taking a case over a dog toy? Uh, I would be hard pressed to give you a date on that. Well, I'm thinking never. I'm delighted by this notion. Um, <laughs> last week, the Supreme Court agreed to hear an appeal by Jack Daniels of a decision that a parody dog toy called, and I love this, Bad Spaniels does not infringe the liquor maker's trademarks. God bless. <laughs> all right. Uh, we all know about Jack Daniels. I don't mean to suggest anything by that, but we know what that product <laughs> is all about. And now we're learning about the... I can't even say this with... Yeah, I mean, Daniels. it's great, right? Yeah. Okay. I can guess as to what Jack Daniels is upset about, but on the, you know, on the surface, it can just seem a little silly. I mean, I'm laughing about it. We're all, we're all having a laugh. It doesn't at first blush, scream, we need the highest legal authority in the United States to clear this up right now. But yeah. I suspect there's something a little more substantive, a little more meat on the bone. You know what I'm saying? And during a really, like, there are so many other things that are packed into this Supreme Court term. It's just hilarious that they're like, no, 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 no. But we got to get to this bad spaniels. You're not putting dog toys on the same level as student debt relief? Are you serious? The IP... The IP lawyers are going to get mad at us. We're all, <laughs> we're all kind of gesturing at their unimportant work. But what do we need to know, Amber? What's it up? is funny. I mean, it's a booze maker yeah. and a dog toy. And I did want to lead with that because it, it brings you into the conversation. But this one's actually really interesting beyond just the fun punny dog toy name and all of that. The court ultimately is going to be weighing in on a classic clash, trademark protections versus free speech rights. So it really is big stuff here. Basically, the main issue is this. 
are commercial products that include some kind of allegedly expressive content given the same First Amendment protections against trademark infringement claims as more traditionally expressive works? So stuff like a book, a movie, a piece of art. Yeah, I mean, you know, a rubber dog toy that squeaks and gets my dog's attention. Uh, I'm willing to hear someone stand there and argue that that's like an expressive work. I'm sure it's a little more complicated than that. Um, But... I do think it would help to lay the track here a little bit. I mean, how did this all bubble up and how did we get to the doorstep of the of the high court here? So I know this won't happen. This is an aside. I would love there to be the prop of the dog toy in the Supreme Court so that a, a an artist would have to draw the attorney holding like the prop <laughs> dog toy. Yeah. I know that won't happen, but that's that's put, my deep put wish it in inside. A, put it in a judge's robes as well. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So here's the quick backgrounder on how we got there. The dispute goes all the way back to 2014. Um, A company called VIP Products that produces the Bad Spaniels toys was actually the one to sue Jack Daniels after they received a cease and desist letter over the toy. I actually had to kind of remind myself with a little Google image search of what that Jack Daniels bottle looks like. All I could envision in my head was that it's a black label with words on it. So when I looked it back up, it Here's the refresher I got. (laughs) It has on it old number seven, and that's pretty prominent. And then there's lettering about it being Tennessee whiskey. The parody dog toy version swaps that to read old number two on your Tennessee carpet. (laughs) So there's the joke. There's the parody Somebody was really thinking. (laughs) (laughs) So here's what happened at the lower court. District court said that the toy infringed Jack Daniels' trademark. The Ninth Circuit overturned that decision in 2020, saying the lower court should have deemed the toy an expressive work protected by the First Amendment. At the time, that then was appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court declined to take it up. It went back down to the lower courts, moved its way back up through the system. And on this second go-round, the justices have, in fact, decided to grant cert. Okay, so I, that all makes sense. I'm very curious, though, how one defines these expressive works. Everyone is very curious about this question, indeed. So there is a framework that's actually from back in the late 80s that was developed by the Second Circuit. It's called the Rogers Test, and that's used to evaluate expressive uses of trademarks. It allows for the use of a trademark as long as it's artistically relevant and not explicitly misleading. That has also been adopted by a bunch of other circuits um, using that same kind of framework. And some parties have tried to extend it in the past to cover commercial products in addition to just straight up expressive works like a book. But the Supreme Court has never weighed in on the test. So attorneys told Law 360 it's going to be really interesting to follow this one to see what the justices say about the framework itself. And also more specifically, to look out for where they draw the line between commercial and non-commercial speech, because that's kind of the crux here of of what it's going to turn on. Another area that's likely to be explored in this case is about some classic trademark stuff, confusion or dilution of a brand. So one of the main points of registered trademarks is to avoid a marketplace where it's confusing for consumers and to prevent the dilution of a particular brand. But how that protection for a brand stacks up against chilling free speech rights is murky. So that's something they could really get into with this ruling. Basically, a high court win here for the toy maker would mean a more expansive First Amendment evaluation of the nature of trademark use. And it would open up more room for people making joking use of existing trademarks, even if they're selling something. 
Yeah, I mean, we were we began the the segment here kind of being like, what? Why are they spending time on this? But it is, you know, the eternal question of trademark protection versus free expression. Throw the records out when those two lock horns, you know what I'm saying? And it is interesting that you say that this like doctrine goes back to the 80s. And I'm sure the court has been asked to evaluate it in other contexts. And if they haven't, but they decide that this exact sort of vehicle, even though it's about this silly dog toy company butting heads with this uh, very famous whiskey maker, it represents, like, like you say, Amber, it represents this broader dialogue over the limits of free speech rights and trademark rights. So we will, of course, be eagerly awaiting when this gets briefed or in, and argued. I'm not throwing out hope that we could get a dog on the floor of the court playing with the toy. I don't Fingers know. Fingers crossed. They probably won't do it. That's not, that's not really how it goes there. You don't need like demonstrations. But I'm not going to say no. Um, but what are some of the outcomes here? Like, where, where are the broad lines um, about where the court could go with this? And what would those decisions mean? So part of what I love about this is that I'm going to be the most unbiased journalist because I don't even know exactly how I feel about this case. And it's because there are compelling arguments on both sides. So the possible outcomes and what they mean all depend on your perspective about what you're hoping for here. Jack Daniels has argued a win for the toy maker, and this is a quote, unjustifiably transforms humor into a get out of the Lanham Act free card. Jack Daniels basically would say that the toy maker was trying to ride on its coattails of the brand that they've worked really hard to build up reputation and all this goodwill. And if that kind of thing is allowed for commercial products that mimic the trademarks or the trade dress of another product under just like a thin veneer of parody is how they would describe it. That would open floodgates for all kinds of knockoffs that could diminish the reputation of a whole bunch of brands. On the flip side, the toy maker, if they lose the case, argue that it would really suppress not just straight up parody products, but overall social commentary could be chilled. And that company has said that Jack Daniels just has a problem with the principle of the First Amendment not allowing a trademark holder to control public discourse about their mark. So you can see the big clash there. Yeah. The VIP company has said that the high court could use this case to create a clear national standard that gives parodies breathing room under the First Amendment and sort of quash this entire debate about where the line is. And the bottom line question here is going to be, there has to be a line drawn. And the question is exactly where? I mean, are you more on the side of the parody, more on the side of protecting the brands and their right to not have their marks diluted? And that's going to be a really interesting one to watch. It has been taken up by the high court, but it's not yet on the calendar. It's expected to be argued in either February or March. And we'll have to wait to see what happens then. Next, I wanted to focus our attention on a very interesting round of sports litigation out in California, where a jury there last week absolved the NCAA, the sort of overarching major national college athletics organization, absolved the NCAA of any fault in the death of a former football player at USC, the University of Southern California. That player died in 2018 and was posthumously diagnosed 
with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is the degenerative brain condition that has basically seized much of the dialogue around the safety of professional football and now uh, amateur football for the last decade plus. And this is noteworthy because while there's lots of concussion litigation that I think has generally been on people's radar, this is the first time a jury has ever weighed in on the NCAA's liability for chronic head injuries and a, and a wrongful death suit arising out of those injuries. And basically, the NCAA's victory here could have serious reverberations all across the college athletics landscape. So there's lots of things to, uh, uh, to pull apart here. Yeah, this is such a massive, massive issue with football. I mean, this is, I, I feel like over the last like decade, people are starting to say like, I'm not going to let my kids play football because of this. Mm -hmm. So it's, it was really interesting to see this outcome here. But can you kind of bring us up to speed on the, the litigation? Yes. So the case we're talking about was brought by the family of a man named Matthew D. And he played linebacker at USC from 1988 to 1992. And he died in 2018 from complications from an alcohol and cocaine overdose. Now, after he died, doctors diagnosed him with CTE. That is the neurodegenerative disorder that has, that has been linked to continuous blows to the head that are common in contact sports like football. Dee's family sued, and they argued that his time playing football at USC basically substantially contributed to his CTE, which in turn led him to the substance abuse issues later in his life that eventually killed him. And the basic outline of their argument is that the NCAA knew, uh, knew of the harm that repetitive head trauma can cause, but didn't do enough to warn or educate its member colleges, coaches, students, and basically kept quiet about the whole thing. The trial lasted uh, about a month, um, which is a long time for something like this to play out. And the NCAA, during that trial, firmly pushed back. They basically said that Dee's death was due to his own comorbidities, substance abuse that stretched be, uh, even prior to the time that he was a college athlete, uh, you know, he was also diagnosed with liver cirrhosis and other conditions that the NCAA says have nothing to do with playing football at USC. And then it sort of more, more squarely denied that it concealed information or kept quiet about head trauma and its, and its dangers from colleges and the other members of the organization. This is really interesting that the NCAA prevailed here. They were let off the hook for any liability. How did that come to be? What exactly did the jury have to decide to, to reach that verdict? Yeah, so there were two specific questions that were put to the jurors by Guy's family's attorneys, both of which were answered in favor of the NCAA's argument. The first saw 11 jurors agree that the NCAA did not unreasonably increase the risk of harm to Guy, and one juror disagreed. So they, that was the first question. Did the NCAA unreasonably increase Guy's risk of harm? They said, then the jurors said no. The second question was basically whether the NCAA unreasonably failed to take measures to minimize the risks of head injuries. And on that point, 10 jurors agreed that the NCAA was not liable on that front. 
So, you know, as, I, as you can see in my kind of very attenuated descriptions of those questions, they're kind of narrowly tailored when it comes to the broader issue of whether the NCAA is, is responsible, you know, regarding the medical situations of one football player, you know, who played almost, you know, 30 years ago. Now, during the course of the trial, a big part of the NCAA's defense was that individual colleges make up the NCAA. And those colleges are in charge of their own athletic programs and that there was nothing the institution itself could have done to change Guy's circumstances. So in addition to them saying, we didn't cover up any, you know, damning information, we also don't exercise as much power as the plaintiffs assert here. This is, you know, USC is in charge of, you know, carrying out its football program as it sees fit. Um, and that includes making medical decisions about what is going on with its players and things like that. So that is sort of the outline of how the jurors uh, came down on these questions. I'm always really interested in situations like this where you have a really big overarching topic like CTE in football and what the responsibility is of the leagues, of the individual teams, all of that, versus the notion that lawyers love to say, which is bad facts make bad law, that that old chestnut. Was this a case of, okay, this, the, the NCAA's arguments are really strong here and this is going to be a window into the future of some potential similar cases? Or is it because of the specific fact pattern of this one individual football player that this turned out this way? What are you thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of prongs here in terms of the big takeaways. I should also mention that a big part of the NCAA's defense is that they actually said that a lot of the science and medical literature on CTE is, in their words, evolving. And they kind of raise questions that football even causes CTE at all, which in the context of separate litigation, which I'll talk about in a second, involving the NFL, was pretty much a settled question. Now, they clearly raised enough doubt here to get off the hook in this specific factual question, but I thought that that was interesting. But as I said, this is a big deal because it's the first wrongful death CTE suit against the NCAA to reach a jury, and the NCAA has prevailed. And basically, this whole thing is operating in the shadow of a similar case against the NFL, which I think most even casual news consumers probably know about. The NFL settled uh, this huge multi-district litigation with over 20,000 former NFL players in 2015, and that basically set up this huge settlement fund that paid for a bunch of uh, former players' health care, provided them with neurological exams and other treatments. Now, that settlement has been a little bit fraught in its own right. There's been allegations of fraud both by the league and by former players. Yeah, I think we've even talked about that on Pro Se before. We have, yeah. There's like, mm-hmm. there's the, there was the race norming where they yeah. would do like, they would assume a, a like lower cognitive position for black players. So that's a whole other sort of hornet's nest, which we have touched on. But at the time, while there was some criticism about the level of the settlement and all of this, it was seen as a huge deal that the league agreed to pay them for their suffering, even if they admit no explicit fault, like often happens in massive settlements like that. It was a big deal for them to say like, okay, here is money you can draw from to, you know, alleviate your suffering for the, for these injuries you sustained. But on this narrow question, and again, that was an MDL, 20,000 players strong. This is a lawsuit by one former player's family whose career ended a very long time ago. So maybe, like you say, Amber, maybe not a great candidate to kind of hold the NCAA's feet to the fire. 
But for now, um, there appears to be no similar concession on the horizon from the NCAA to pay former college athletes for any drawbacks they've had from CTE or other head injuries. The uh, attorneys for Guy's family did not respond. They, of course, have the avenues to appeal if they like, and we will uh, certainly keep an eye on it. But for now, a pretty resounding win for the NCAA on this front. We typically end our show with something offbeat, but I'm using this space this week just for an announcement, everybody. Okay. We, as part of our broader podcast team, have another short narrative podcast that's out on our Law360 Explorers channel. This one is about, man, law school's got some challenges. So it's a two-part series. The first one's already out. If anybody's interested, just look for Law360 Explorers. Specifically, it's called Law 360 explores the law school promise. Hmm. Now, I'm super excited about this. I've listened to the first episode, and it's you and uh, one of our producers, Steve Trader, kind of just battened these questions back and forth a little bit. And we, on pro se, we've like alluded to, you know, a, we, we talk about law schools from time to time. There's no shortage of, like you say, problems, issues, fraught points there. So I think it's good to give it some... Uh, Give it its own platform. I'm, I'm excited to hear more of it. Yeah. Steve did a bunch of reporting for this, talked to a lot of experts in the, in the field, many of whom appear on the show. And we divided it into sort of two big buckets we wanted to talk about. The first episode is all about the process to get into law school and some of the problems around really relying super heavily on the LSAT exam. Mm-hmm. And then the upcoming second episode is about what happens once you're in those hallowed halls and sitting in your classroom and if that curriculum is really working for everybody. Did you find this to be a cathartic uh, project for you personally, Amber, as the only person on the call who has uh, graduated law school? If by cathartic you mean triggering, then sure. (laughs) It's a fine line. It's a a thin coin with two sides on it. You know, honestly, there are things in the process of working on this podcast that I kept saying to um, Steve, obviously worked on it. Kelly also was integral to the process. And every time we'd meet and talk about certain aspects, I kept saying, this explains so much about my law school experience. Now (laughs) I understand what happened. So I think others may feel similarly that already are graduates of law school. So I would encourage people to listen for that reason. But also current law students, you know, maybe you'll see some of your own experiences reflected back and maybe be able to think about ways that you can push your own schools to make some positive changes. And that's the intention behind it, not just to complain about law school, <laughs> but also to talk about ways that it can be improved because that's what everybody really wants, that it's the best experience for people that leads to the best lawyers out there in the world when they graduate. Sounds like a great project. And like I said, I'm looking forward to hearing more of it. So uh, really, really psyched for you guys. If anybody needs one final inducement, uh, Kelly Marcano wrote a great theme song for the show. So tune in to hear that too. Um, (laughs) So happy about this project all around. And thanks for letting me plug it on Pro Se, guys. It's been a great show today. Really appreciate you being with me, Alex. Thank you. And Haley. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader, our contributing reporters this week, Dorothy Atkins, Gina Kim, Ryan Davis, and Hannah Albarazzi. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. 
And if you like Pro Se, you can really help us out by leaving a written review. That leads other people to finding our program. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, head on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. And we'll see you back here next week.